So a couple of um, days ago, actually now, just a little more over a week ago, I went on spring break. And uh, this particular spring break was uh, because of work schedules and college expectations and all the other kinds of things, was, was a road trip in which my son Reed and I drove out to the East Coast in order to visit family. We checked in on our oldest son, uh, who's out in college in Vermont, and uh, we went down and saw the grandparents in Connecticut, and it was a really a great time. Uh, one of the, uh, of the things that I remember from the trip was, was the cool places that we passed by on the journey. You know, we went really near to the, to the football hall of fame and not all that far from the baseball hall of fame. And, and at one point, we actually passed right by the uh, village of Saratoga. I don't know how many of you know about Saratoga. Um, it is uh, widely appreciated these days as a great place for horse racing and for spa lounging, and for wine drinking, and all, all kinds of other sort of neat things. But back in the day, Saratoga was known as a place where something far more significant happened than anything that goes on there that day. Back, back hundreds of years ago, Saratoga was the place where the last major battle of the American Revolution took place. How many of you knew that? You, you, I shouldn't ask that. That's embarrassing. <laughs> but, but it's where the last big confrontation of the American Revolution took place. And, and if you go there to this day, uh, you, you can see the field where it all happened. Gone is the, is the smell of gun smoke. Gone are the, 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 the cries of the fallen. Gone are the shouts of victory. Uh, from the American side, all that remains to you to remind you now of the very decisive conflict that took place on that particular spot is this gigantic 155-foot-tall obelisk, almost like the Washington Monument, okay, that stands there at that place. And carved into each of the four sides of the obelisk is a huge niche, and beneath the, each one of the, the niches on, a, on the pedestal is the name of one of the great American generals that fought there and that led the, the, the battle, the struggle for freedom and, and for the revolution of our country. And above every single one of the names in the niches, they've positioned a massive bronze statue of the particular general on horseback. You know, just looking commanding and, and valiant. And, and in the first niche, you see the figure of Horatio Gates. And in the second, you see Philip John Schuyler. And in the third, you see Daniel Morgan. And you walk around the corner to the fourth niche. And you can't help but be struck with a really weird cold feeling. Because the name of the general is carved into the stone there. But the statue is strangely absent. It is conspicuously absent, in fact. And as you read the name of that particular general who commanded West Point, that general who, who once distinguished himself in battle at, at Lake Champlain and Quebec and right here at Saratoga, your mind wanders back, perhaps if you know history at all, to that misty place along the shores of the Hudson River where that particular general, Benedict Arnold, sold his soul, 
gave away his fidelity to the enemy and began a, a spiral downward that resulted in his eventually dying in poverty and disgrace. As Clarence McCartney once wrote, that empty niche in that monument shall ever stand for fallen manhood, for power prostituted, for genius soiled, for faithlessness to a sacred trust. What makes a titan like Benedict Arnold turn his back on everything he believed in? What, what makes any person, I suppose, turn away from their first love, their first allegiance, uh, that, that dedication that, and devotion that once really drove them and formed them and guided them in life? I think it's important to ask the question because all the time we're faced with the temptation to go there ourselves. We can find ourselves drawn uh, into involvement uh, in the internet, in office dalliances, in, in all kinds of different environments with engagements that we are really calling to ourselves extramarital exploration, just a little extramarital exploration maybe even experimentation. We can get to thinking of the stealing we do from our, our job sites or, or maybe even from our government, our responsibilities as creative accounting, as just taking what really belongs to us. We can label somebody who, 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 who speaks um, savagely about a friend behind their back or who who lies, tells half-truths. We can dub this as backsliding. We can ignore the tendency to serve ourselves more fervently than we do God. But it all comes down to the same word in the end, if you think about it. Every one of us has been there. I know I've been there. It all comes down to this word, betrayal. Betrayal. It's a very uncomfortable word. It's one that we don't like to face often. It's one of the reasons why I personally think it's not all that helpful to throw stones at the Benedict Arnolds of this world. It's not that there's not something wrong with these people, that their character isn't disfigured. We don't have to make excuses for, for what they did, but it's never good luck or it's never good sense to break mirrors. Maybe that's why we don't throw stones. I want to invite you to look into the mirror tonight. I want to invite you to, to, to join with me in, in looking closely at the story of the most notorious traitor of all time, the one whose, whose tale we read in part from Matthew's Gospel a moment ago. I want to invite you to look at Judas Iscariot. And I think it's worth our time to do this because it, it, it shows us how easy it is to, to stumble even if you've been heading in the right direction for a very long time. It's also important to do it so we can take steps if we've already started to wander in some sphere of our life tonight. If we've already begun to wander, we can take some steps so that when our name is there on the wall of history, when somebody else is visiting some sign or memorial to the life that we lived, 
they don't find themselves standing beneath an empty niche where we're concerned. What's so shocking about what Judas did, I think, in the midst of Maundy Thursday, when he went to the chief priests and the Sanhedrin and turned Jesus in for pocket change, really, what's so shocking about that is how unlike him it looked. If you'd met Jesus, or Judas rather, as he was riding across the battlefield a few days beforehand, you'd have admired him. If, if you'd seen Judas as he came in so proudly through those gates on Palm Sunday, you'd never have guessed about what was to come. We don't even know why Judas had followed Jesus in the first place. We don't at least know fully. We can speculate, I suppose. It doesn't seem all that far-fetched to think he could have been moved by some of the kinds of interests that, that move us to dedicate ourselves, to commit ourselves to the people or the organizations or even the God that we do. Maybe Judas was drawn by the perks. Um, purely and simply by the material benefits that he felt he would get by going with Jesus. Um, there had to have been such benefits to being with Jesus. Um, we know that, that devoted followers would take these people, the disciples, into the house. They'd give them free food, free shelter. Maybe Judas was drawn by that opportunity. He would have gotten a front row seat literally at miracles. Okay? At the big concert events, the big speaking events, Judas right in the front row. That had to have been exciting for him. He got the admiration of others. He was one of the inside entourage of this celebrity Jesus. And, and in Judas's case, he also had access to something that, that, that nobody else in the circle did. He had access to the common purse. John's Gospel tells us that all of the monies that were given to support the cause of Jesus by the devoted followers that were out there as they passed through their town, all of that money got stuck in a common bank account, so to speak, and Judas had the one ATM card for it. And, and we know from the scriptures that Judas had been going to the ATM fairly often and somewhat secretively. He just called it borrowing, I'm sure. But it was probably an indication that Judas liked the perks, right? He liked the perks of following Jesus. If that was true, then you can assume that by Palm Sunday, Judas was really getting excited because what was about to happen was the fulfillment of a second big impulse that we know for sure was a significant passion of Judas's life. Think of all the perks that would come Judas's way when Jesus came into power. Judas was very interested in power. He was a member of a, a group within Israeli society known as the Zealots. The Zealots were a and, and a, an extreme political party. They were uh, so committed to the uh, overthrow of the Roman government, they were resorting to, to, to acts we would call uh, terrorism or certainly out-of-bounds lawlessness. 
And, and so it is not surprising, I suppose, that he was attracted to Jesus because Judas had probably seen in Jesus at least some evidence that he was meeting a kindred spirit, somebody who had the same thing in mind. Jesus said, after all, render to Caesar only what's Caesar's and to God what is God's. Didn't his parables, the parables of Jesus, often speak of ejecting vile tenants from vineyards where they didn't belong. Judas would have thrilled at some of the teachings of Jesus. Didn't Jesus say plainly, he came not to bring peace, but a sword. And what is more, Jesus seemed actually gifted with a kind of leadership charisma. He was attracting throngs of people who wanted to make him king. That, that, that Judas's zealot passions had just been going redlining with excitement at what was about to come. And when they all came through the gates on that Palm Sunday, and they were greeted with the hosannas and the palm branches that military conquerors in Israel had always been greeted with. That's what that whole drama was about. It was, a, it was the, the reception that the Israelites always gave to conquering warlords. Judas must have just thrilled at the thought of the revolution that was about to take place. The great Israeli revolution that was about to take place. If some of the other disciples were debating which seat they would get to sit in, their, own, their mothers were actually advocating for them, we're told, which seat of honor they would sit in when the great revolution took place. You can imagine Judas who'd already been entrusted as sort of secretary of the treasury. You can imagine his ambition, secretary of state, vice messiah. Who knows where this thing could go? Judas would enjoy more privileges than he'd ever known before. He'd be finally in a position to shape society as it ought to be. And... and, and Let's not rob Judas of at least that consideration. I mean, there had to have been some positive motivations in this man's life. There had to have been some virtue about the character of this guy. He had to have signed on with Jesus, at least in part, because he thought he might actually be able to work through Jesus to shape a better kind of world. How else do you explain the decision of Judas to sign up for service with a rabbi of all people. There had to have been some piety in Jesus, is what I'm, in Judas is what I'm trying to say. Some basic piety, some ethics, some religious value that made him want to go with this Nazarene. If Judas didn't seem to be filled with at least as much virtue as the other 11, would they have trusted him with the common purse? Right? I mean, think about it. Would they ever have trusted him? If he really was the exceptionally bad guy, the Simon Legree, you know, the, the evil actor that history sometimes has painted him to be. Then when Jesus says at the Last Supper, as we read a moment ago, one of you will betray me, we would hear one of the other disciples saying, Psst, I think it's Judas. I've always thought he was kind of shifty. I saw him going to the ATM in the middle of the night. But we don't hear that from the other disciples. Instead, we're told that each one wondered if he himself 
could be the betrayer. I, I think that's a good reality check to ask that question. Because on Palm Sunday, Judas was no easier to spot as a traitor than Benedict Arnold was at Saratoga or that you or I might be right here. The capacity to betray a sacred cause, a sacred vow, a sacred commitment to a person, to a purpose, to yourself, or to your God. It's in every single one of us. And I think it's there for the very same reasons that Jesus was finally overcome by the impulse. There comes a moment when you figure out that, that Jesus is calling you to love him and his creatures more than the perks and the power and the piety that are often peddled as the way of discipleship. Um, and sometime, I think, Palm Sunday and Maundy Thursday, sometime between those two days, this realization begins to dawn on Judas. That, that, that the perks, the power, the superficial piety that the world sort of says is the version of success is not what's going to get delivered if he keeps following Jesus. I mean, think about this. When you love the perks of privilege, and who of us doesn't, how scary is it to keep following somebody who makes it clear that he considers his own life, his own body and blood, much less his comforts, entirely secondary to meeting the needs of others. Why, somebody like that, a leader, a lord in my life like that, could ask me to trade in my expensive car. He could ask me to change my vacation plans. He could ask me to give up drinking so much or doing some other thing I'm doing so as to enable me to serve others better. He could do that. Yes, he could. Yes, he could. And if your whole conception of power is, is all wrapped up in this idea of putting yourself in a position of superiority, superior stature, superior influence, over other people, how scary is it going to be to keep following somebody who at the point where the crowd is ready to make him king insists instead on stooping to wash the filthy feet of fishermen? Why, somebody like that he could ask me to go to one of my enemies and do something sacrificial to express love toward them. Why, somebody who handles power like that could, could want me to go to that idiot at my workplace and do something to intentionally encourage him and better his life. He could call me to forgive the person who hurt me. He could call me to, 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 to spend less time advancing my opinion and more time really listening to other people. Yeah. Yeah, he might. 
And when your understanding of piety, when your understanding of spirituality involves mainly an effort to be a moderately good person, to, to espouse high ideals, aren't you going to be terrified of somebody who seems able to look across you at the dinner table and see your inner motivations and know the truth about what really drives you? Why, well, somebody like that, communing with somebody like that, would force me to take a really hard look at my hypocrisy, at my cheating, at my lying, at my lusting, at my lushing, that I've been allowing myself behind this virtuous mask. Somebody like that could call me to really change. Yes, he could. Yes, he could. So the question is, can you and I really bear to follow a Lord like that? Jesus is a Lord like this. And Judas decided he just couldn't do it. He just wouldn't do it. And so he turns Jesus in for what seems for the moment like a better deal. He betrays Jesus for 30 silver pieces worth of perks. He sells out the Christ for a moment of fleeting power that's marked by swords and clubs and a mocking little kiss in the garden. He delivers the Savior of the world to his enemies and he receives in return the seal of piety from priests who would rather kill God than change in any way their particular way of coming at religion. And is it any wonder that when Judas finally woke up and realized what he'd traded in and what he'd gotten for it, he went out and hung himself. Now, I don't want that to be true for you or me. None of us want that to be true for us. I don't mean we would actually go out and hang ourselves, but is it possible that one day we're going to wake up and we're going to realize to our despair that we have slowly and subtly sold our soul in order to maintaining the passing perks and the vain power and the superficial piety that the world's always offering as a substitute for real discipleship when you could have had I could have had God, the real Jesus, and everything that he offers. If that's even a remote possibility for us, then, then let's really think deeply about these two concluding thoughts. First of all, whatever treason we may have committed against God, another person, or even yourself, Jesus offers us a fresh start today. He does not want any empty niches above our names. You notice what G Jesus called Judas on the night in the upper room? Uh, do, actually, do you remember what Ju Jesus called Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane? 
as he was coming to betray Jesus and to have him arrested and to send him to a cross. Do you remember the word that Jesus used for Judas? He called him friend. Friend. Do you remember how Jesus responded to the apostle Peter who betrayed him arguably as badly as Judas did three times, denying he ever even knew him. Do you remember how Jesus treated Peter? He made him the rock of the early church. He restored him, and he made him the rock of the church. My point is that even when we turn our back on God, even when we betray Jesus, he refuses to turn his back on or betray us. That the truth is that even Judas, I believe, even Judas could have been forgiven, could have been renewed. There might have been churches to St. Judas all over the world today if he'd only dared to believe, only dared to trust in the redeeming power and love and grace of Jesus Christ. I hope you'll put your trust there. I'm trying to put my trust there as we come to him to find forgiveness, repentance, and a fresh start. Then secondly, and secondly, and lastly, even if you don't feel you have betrayed Christ in any way, and there's a lot of you sitting in here thinking, I don't know what this guy's talking about. I have never betrayed Jesus. I'm not in touch with anything that I've ever done that would be against the grain of the gospel or the way of his kingdom. Even if you feel that you've never betrayed Christ, then be sure to commit your life to pursuing better blessings than Judas was seeking. If you want perks that truly enrich you, forget trying to amass comforts and privileges for yourself. It's okay to have some comforts and some privileges. But do not make them the number one strategy for, for finding blessing in this life. Instead, live to bring life to others. Make that the prime directive of your life. To paraphrase Jesus, those who live for themselves die by themselves, but those who give themselves away enjoy riches of friendship, of peace, of fulfillment that no one can ever take away. The question is, what do you need to give away? You set us up beautifully for this tonight, Pete. What do you, what do you need to give away in order to, to, to know the greater blessing that God has uh, in the significance of your life? If you want genuine power, if you want real power in this life, pursue the kind that comes from sacrificial love. It has always amazed me that Jesus did not call down 12 legions of angels, 20 legions of angels, to stop him from having to suffer upon the cross. He could have done it like this. He could have blinked an eyelash and incinerated everybody standing around jeering at him on that cross. It's always amazed me that Jesus didn't do it. Because Christ knew that having power over others cannot begin to exert the lasting, transforming influence as when you have power under others. And so in your life, in your workplace, in your, in your marriage, in your friendship circles, where do you need to bend your knee to get lower in order to exert power from beneath? Where is that for you? And finally, if you want a piety that means 
more than maybe you're experiencing in your religious life right now, then, then understand why Jesus went to the cross so willingly. Christ knew that true spirituality is not about what we do in the religious building. Okay? It's, it's a good thing we do in this religious building. But, but real piety is about what we do out there when it's hard, really hard, to be obedient to the call of God. And yet as he climbed up that hill that we'll remember this coming week, Christ was moved by an obedient passion to fulfill the purpose that God had given him in his life. How can you and I more humbly obey his calling when it's really hard? One day the final battle is going to be over. This is the good news, right? There's coming a day when the when the last battle will be fought on some field of this world and the record will get reviewed and Jesus will look at you and he'll look at me and he will say with joy on that great day of armistice, well done, good and faithful servants. Or else, he'll turn the corner, his eyes searching for us, and be so sad to find one more cold and unnecessarily empty niche. Which of those things will be true between the hosannas of today and the coming of that tomorrow? The choice is ours. Please pray with me. God, you know that there's not a single one of us here who consciously wants our lives in any way to, to betray the trust that others or you have put in us. But we confess, Lord, that as strong as our passion is for the good in moments, sometimes our blood just runs weak. And where any of us have tended to that's vended by this world more than we've loved you, more than we've loved your creatures, more than we've loved the purpose for which we're made, we just ask for your forgiveness. And so as we go forth from here, strengthen us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. For as long as the ground is below our feet, keep our eyes fixed on serving, our hands applied to learning the method of your love. For when we do, we know that eternal blessings and real power and spiritual life will surely flow. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.